Welcome back. You're listening to Patriarch, the retelling of the biblical story of Abraham Bummy, the author Colin Piper. This particular episode is not one I enjoyed writing, and nor one I particularly enjoy reciting. I'm sitting up here in the, the beautiful highlands of Scotland, overlooking the Isles of Skye, Lewis and Harris. It's a beautiful day, and quite honestly, uh, the last thing I want to think about is some of the sordid things that went on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Something of a parable, really, of how we cope with the sordidness of the world round about us. But we have to face up to it. I have to do this podcast. You don't have to listen, but I hope you will. And I hope, actually, in the context of the wider story of the glory of God, his love for us, and his ability to cope with all the degradation that we've brought upon his creation, that uh, you will somehow be inspired by it. Patriarch. Chapter 5, Part 5 The hammering at the door was ferocious enough to make him physically jump and the women cry out. For their parts, the two guests seem unmoved by it all. But Lot was taking no chances and quickly, even roughly, bundled the two visitors into a room which could be barricaded from within. Then he could turn his mind to the problem without. As soon as he did, it became apparent that the problem was a massive one. He'd feared that a small group might gather at his gate. It hadn't, though. Instead, what had gathered seemed to be the whole town. He could hear movement on every side, and the house was totally surrounded. It was unnerving to think that the most that separated them from the crowd and possible death was a wall, and the least was a mere piece of wood. Lot had frozen alone in the middle of the courtyard, while the women had sought shelter, probably in the hope that the crowd would give up and go away. Lot, however, knew this was a forlorn hope. It was evident this crowd, far from decreasing, was ever growing, and what was more, the mood of the crowd was getting more frenzied. Some were even attempting to scale the wall, while others were pressing hard against the door. Oh, Lot knew he had to do something, but just when he needed it most, the courage he'd so recently and sadly so fleetingly found deserted him. The lot who stood transfixed to the spot in the courtyard was the lot of old, whose whole demeanour spoke of defeat. It was also the old lot, whose stance had suddenly slumped to expose his advancing years. Passively, he listened to individual voices which occasionally rose above the general melee. He knew most of them. Some were old, some young. Some were decent enough folk, at least relatively and normally. All were male, and suggesting the most vile of acts. Finally, one of those he feared the most spoke for all. It was the voice of the scar-faced guard, and the words he spoke would haunt Lot's dreams until the day he died. Except in his dreams, he would see the ugly face utter them, whereas in reality... The voice came thundering out of the dark. Where are the men who came to you tonight? The menace lay in the tone. 
There was a coldness to it which silenced the crowd about him and seemed to noticeably chill the night air. Involuntarily, Lot shuddered. Bring them out to us. This time, the tone was gentle and quietened so that it feigned politeness. It provoked a degree of mirth in the crowd who knew how incongruous the tone was, given how the sentence would end. The guard paused briefly before bellowing out unashamedly with a crudity intended for maximum effect. So that we can have sex with them! The accent on the word sex was a cue to the crowd to respond and the last two words were almost lost in the subsequent roar. Yet somehow the sound was deadened in Lot's head. As the last vestige of courage fell from him, he slipped into an almost unreal world which dealt with the outside crisis by seeking to deny it. Lot had been here before, as he'd been carried away in Kedula Oma's train, he tried to pretend in his mind all was well, and ultimately it had been. Now he tried to persuade himself it would be so again. He tried first in his mind to manipulate the meaning of the words and sounds and senses to suggest they weren't that serious. But he failed. Then he tried to manage his responses to them by making the challenge a matter of intrigue rather than fear, to be looked at and considered objectively and academically out of the heat of the moment. Again, though, he failed. The danger wouldn't go away, nor would his fears, and he had to face both. Lot's retreat into himself could only have taken a few seconds, Oh, but such was the mood of the crowd that in the briefest of times much had happened. If anything, the frenzy had increased and now there was a concerted effort to break down the door. Lot knew that as soon as it gave way, the crowd would be through it and he could be crushed and killed in this stampede. If nothing else, the demands of self-preservation now required action. But what? was a defining moment in Lot's life. For a few hours, the Lot who desired to act rightly had done so. He'd found faith and courage to face up to evil, and for this short while he and all about him had seen the measure of the man. He wanted to do the same again. Oh, but he was clueless what to do. He thought about going to the two visitors and asking them. He thought about it but didn't. And he would soon discover how differently things could have turned out if he had. Instead, the old judge came to his own cowardly conclusion of right and wrong based upon his expert knowledge of the ways of Sodom. Everywhere, even Sodom and Gomorrah, had a moral code. It may have been warped, relative or contrived, but it could still be oddly persuasive. To anyone else, anywhere else, what Lot was about to deliver would be seen as a despicable series of judgments pathetically pronounced. But right there and then, 
the appointed judge of Sodom decided he had only one avenue of appeal left and he would go there. Slowly he shuffled to the door, scared not only of what would happen as he lifted the block, but what could happen as he delivered his response to the plea of the city. The reaction to both was hard to predict. The block was very hard to remove because of the pressure put on it by the door bending under the pressure of the crowd which pushed against it. At the first sense of movement, the crowd pushed harder, making the opening of the door utterly impossible. Then, perhaps realising this, the crowd eased off, allowing Lot to finally flip the block out with ease. This was the key moment. The crowd now knew they could enter the compound and probably take the men at will. In the event, though, they didn't. Whatever restrained them, the shock of the door actually opening before them, or something or someone else, Lot would never know. All he knew was that he'd now found himself standing before the men of the city as he'd often done, but never, ever quite like this. For the moment they were strangely subdued, and Lot knew that it was now or never. He forced a smile. It was very false and pathetic, but was the best he could do. And he bent his head to one side, seeking to compose a relaxed look of concern and empathy. His tone was soft, almost musical, but let down by being just a little too high and shaky. No, my, my, my friends, he purred. He was one of them. He was on their side. He understood their needs and desires. They could trust him. Don't do this wicked thing. He was trying not to panic or even show fear, but his throat had dried and the words were coming out hoarse. He was also trying not to come across overjudgmental. He'd learned over the years that the men of Sodom don't like their judges to judge them, merely to arbitrate. The response, though, suggested the men felt judged and sensed fear. They neither wanted to hear these things nor needed to. They made to push forward, and so Lot had to make his final appeal. Look, he said reasonably, man to man now, no longer judge of their actions. His tone was more conspiratorial and lurid, which in the context, made the words even more foul. I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. He paused briefly, partly because he had to, such was the state of his throat, and partly for the suggestion to take root in the minds of the mob. Let me bring them out to you. Oh, how would a brothel owner sell her wares to a crowd like this? She would suggest an intimacy, a personal service, and then what? An abandonment. Uh, uh, Feed the desire, not the mind. Let desire instruct the mind. And you can do with them what you like. The righteous judge of Sodom 
had spoken. He had declared what was wrong and sought to work out his own brand of righteousness, one which was relative and compromising and sought to appease the desires of the crowds. But, at the same time, unbeknown to the crowd outside, the righteous judge of Sodom was also speaking. He too declared what was wrong and prepared to work out his righteousness, one which was holy, uncompromising and designed to appease his own wrath. But don't do anything to these men, for they've come under the protection of my roof. Lot had made his offer to the crowd, a costly one finally delivered, and now he sought to bring in the favours his service to the community demanded. It was a desperate, and as it turned out, a forlorn hope. It wasn't the scar-faced man who responded first, but one whose need and lust was deeper, more warped, and ultimately irredeemable. The small guards almost spat out the words, Get out of our way! And with that the dam burst. With many voices, the crowd spoke as one and began to surge forward. Later the words would would haunt Lot, Personal words he'd heard before, but words he chose not to believe. This fella came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge? As the words kept coming, so did the crowd, pressing on Lot, who stood in front of the door, which one of his family had barricaded behind him. Perhaps it was one of those he had sought to sacrifice, who had instead decided to sacrifice him. Lot's mind couldn't process what was happening or being said. It was just too much. Just one phrase he would later recall before the end finally happened. We'll treat you worse than them. It was an old man who'd said it. Lot knew him well. His frail frame was being crushed at the front of the crowd, and yet his only concern was for the vilest murder. And yet, when the attack came, it came from behind Lot. He'd sought to swing out, but it was hard to strike someone who'd grabbed his collar, particularly when he was pinned back from in front and unable to turn. So Lot had to yield and be pulled down and away. His head violently struck the doorframe and his clothing ripped against a nail. But as his body was manhandled through the door and thrown to the ground, there were two men. Uh, they left him there and turned their attention to the door. Anyone else would have had no hope of fighting back a crowd of this size and frenzy, and even these men, for the first time, seemed to need to exert effort. But the door was shut on the immediate danger, and Lot had a few seconds at least to catch up with what on earth was going on. His two guests, who had somehow rescued him from the mob and then secured the house, were now standing before the door. Lot couldn't work out what they were doing. 
they appeared to be merely standing there, and yet it was apparent from the cries outside that something was going on, something Lot could sense these mysterious strangers were doing, but was clueless how. The cries of confusion from outside were getting more and more desperate. Some were screaming. Others uttering long sentences of repeated expletives. No one any longer pressed against the door. In fact, some seemed to be wandering off and others falling over. Locke could hear the old man cry out in pain as it appeared that a heftily built young man had tripped and fallen on him. Locke was totally bewildered. And the question his visitors asked him needed to be repeated a few times before he heard it. Do you have anyone else here? No response to his first guest question. Sons-in-law, sons, daughters. A little more anxious now, but still without response. Or anyone else in this city who belongs to you. It was the first guest trying again, and his very evident sense of urgency finally shook Lot out of his stunned state. He turned to look at the guest, who with some relief that he'd been heard continued, Get them out of here! because we're going to destroy this place. Any look of comprehension on Lot's face, which had encouraged the two angels so far, had obviously vanished again. And the second guess was required to clarify things for Lot. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. And finally, Lot understood. He had, of course, known that these were no ordinary men, but now he knew the truth. They were messengers from God himself. Lot's problem was he knew so little of this God that he could hardly be expected to comprehend what sort of men his messengers might be. All he knew was that if they spoke, they spoke the words of God, And if they did this, then their words must be acted upon. With difficulty, Lot sought to recall and come to terms with what he'd been told. He worked backwards. The place was to be destroyed. He must get out. He must get his whole family out. That's what they were asking. Did he have any other family? Did he? Just when he needed clarity and speed of thought, his mind just wouldn't function. He was petrified. It churned out all sorts of thoughts, but mostly useless. And his limbs wouldn't respond, but not in any constructive or coordinated fashion anyway. Rather, they just twitched. How he wished everyone would just go away. He simply couldn't cope. And anyway, he, he needed to relieve himself. Of course, it was all totally ridiculous. He had to cope. He must act. He didn't need to relieve himself. He must think, think. He had family and they were all here. Or or did he? No, no, he had sons-in-law, at least as good as had them. His daughters were engaged. Uh, Were the loathsome men family yet? And where were they anyway? He, He must find them. Suddenly, both his brain and limbs began to function properly and he ran. He ran through the gate and and the exertion sped his heart, which pumped oxygen into his blood, which in turn cleared his thinking all the more. Although focused on his quest for the two men, he could still take in what he saw as he went. And it was chaos. 
The crowd of men which had in so intimidated him just moments before now stumbled and lay prostrate, pathetic and pitifully sobbing. They all appeared blind. And with this newfound clarity of thought, Lot realised it was the angels who'd done this. The men were totally unaware of the identity of the one who ran through them. They did, though, cry out in the vain hope that someone might be able to help. But he had neither the time nor the inclination to stop for them. Instead, Lot ran like he hadn't run in years to the home of his sons-in-law, who he found together at the gate of one of their homes. They were obviously enjoying the spectacle, apparently untouched and undisturbed by the phenomenon. When Lot reached them, he was out of breath. He could scarcely get his words out, which simply amused his son-in-laws all the more. This in turn distressed Lot further, so his words became increasingly muddled and funnier to his hearers. Hurry! Involuntarily, Lot leant forward to rest his hands on his knees. Get out of this place! He had to pause for breath, and the men who had taken in the first few words in quiet amusement now began to snigger. Lot got more agitated, but frustratingly couldn't hurry the words out in a a very coherent fashion. Rather, they tumbled out of his mouth, slurred, hushed, and for the most part masked by his heavy breathing. Consequently, it took the men a, a while to piece the final sentence together. Finally, with a tone of apparent anxiety, one asked him, Did you say the Lord is about to destroy this city? Yes! Lot sighed with relief. He'd finally made himself understood and the men were even taking him seriously. Still bent over and breathing heavily, he looked up at the men to see a look of mock seriousness give way to one of utter mirth. He could hardly comprehend it. This was not the response the message or the messenger come to that demanded. The city was to be destroyed, and their patriarch was instructing them what to do. In his frustration, he lashed out. He needed to knock some sense into these idiots. But in his exhausted and bowed state, all he succeeded in doing was to swing round and fall in a heap at the feet of his sons-in-law who practically fell upon top of him themselves, such was the extent of their laughter. Lot knew he should exert himself, but lacked both physical and emotional energy. In falling, it seemed that the fleeting resolve, which had risen as he'd ran, now crumbled again. He lay in the dirt of the city in which he ruled at the feet of the household who towered above him and laughed. He was a joke. A pathetic, powerless creature of fun, ignored and disrespected. The men laughed at him until they could laugh no more, and then they went off to view the other men of the city, most of whom also now lay in the dirt, apparently drunk. For a while, Lot continued to lay there without the will to move. He was tempted to think that if Sodom were to be destroyed, then he might as well die with it. 
And yet there was another voice, dim yet real. It was the voice of his uncle Abraham. And then the two angels. And then another still. It called him and compelled him to stir, to stagger to his feet and stumble and shuffle his way home. He still lacked the energy in himself to move, but was somehow carried along to the door of his house, where he was met by the angels. You're listening to the Patriarch Podcast. For more information, you can go to biblenovels.com where you can become a Patreon supporter to support Overseas Mission.